Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the provincial housing plan. Liberal MLA Corinne Kirkpatrick standing by. First, let's have a listen to more of the Premier here. Here's David Eby speaking this week on, on the housing plan. And we'll create a lot more of these middle-class homes through provincial zoning rules, faster permitting, less red tape, and more incentives. And our plan will create more rental housing stock by making it easier and legal for people to rent out secondary and basement suites across the province. Okay, all right, bold plan here. We heard a lot of it before, and some missing pieces there too. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Corinne Kirkpatrick, Liberal MLA, West Vancouver Capilano. Very pleased to welcome her back. Corinne, thanks for coming on today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Mike. Okay, we all know we need more housing. You guys in the, in the Liberals have been pleading for that as well. We need to get more stuff built that people can afford to buy and live in. Does this, is this plan going to do that? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to cause more chaos and concerns that it's it's going to resolve. I mean, theoretically, it sounds good. An announcement to increase density sounds good. Uh, but the tools that are being implemented um, make no sense. I think there's going to be more chaos. And when you have chaos, it slows down the process. Okay, well, David, Eby, I, I think he knows that this could set up a fight with municipalities over there they're the ones who are responsible for zoning under the current rules now you got the province saying we're going to swing a bit of a hammer here and force you to do stuff here's david eby speaking on this point then i'll get your thoughts let's listen the rezoning which will be a provincial law it will establish base standards across the province uh it will be a requirement of province-wide standard uh to make sure that it works as intended uh we're going to need to engage with municipalities Okay, so he says we're going to, on the one hand, he says it's going to be a, a law across the province applicable to everyone. At the same time, he says we're going to, we're going to consult with municipalities on it. W- what is your concern here about this? I've seen this with a lot of uh, David Eby's housing plans is that uh, uh, you, you announce the plan and then you go and you do the consultation. So I heard from a number of lawyers and councils yesterday that this is simply makes no sense. Uh, there are places in community plans where you want to have your increased density. It's going to be around transit hubs, arterials. You, you want to make sure that you're adding that density in the right places. This is saying this density, you know, regardless of the community plan and the fabric of the community, is going to be forced on these communities across the board. And you are now opening the opportunity to be creating increased density in areas that maybe don't have the infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you have to have a lot of infrastructure, and who's going to pay for that? Okay, well, we're already we've got some B.C. mayors speaking out on this point. Let's listen to one here now. This is Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody speaking yesterday. Let's listen here. 
what may work in one location may well not work in another location. What about the other services that are involved? Police, fires, schools, the hospitals. We're going to have cars. Where are they going to park? Where are they going to park? We put fourplexes on all these lots. Are we going to have Carmageddon and parking chaos? Corinna, is that a concern for you? Well, it's definitely a concern I've heard from people. Carmageddon, I want to use that term again. Um, look at, uh, you know, if you're on a cul-de-sac somewhere, if you're in places where there just already is inadequate uh, um, inadequate parking, and you're also, if you are building these, this increased density far away from transit, hubs, you are now going to be putting a lot more cars on the road, which is the opposite of what this government's been talking about with a focus on active transportation and bike lanes. And you need to uh, work with the municipality before imposing something on them to make sure that density is in the right place. There's appropriate how there's a, a appropriate uh, parking, there's appropriate transit routes. It makes no sense to have a blanket uh, rule across all municipalities. Okay, well, I've spoken to Premier David Eby about this point, and what he says on the parking issue, or could there be more, you're going to create more traffic, gridlock, he says, look, we're in a housing crisis here. We need more housing. People can't find a decent, affordable place we need to build more. We need density. We can't be sitting around here fretting and worrying about where are people going to park. We're in a housing crisis. What do you think of that of that argument? Like, you know, we shouldn't be worried about parking. We shouldn't be worried about traffic. we got to build stuff. That, that is a, a ridiculous argument. Um, uh, what is the purpose of having urban planners if we're just going to say, well, it doesn't matter what the infrastructure is. It doesn't matter where the transit is. You have got, I'll use uh, one of my, um, the District of West Vancouver uh, as an example. I just had the opportunity to look at several iterations of a proposed and very well thought out a plan for adding density um, down towards uh, the water, uh, which is, has been well thought out, community consultation. It's going to be a blend of family homes, smaller homes. So what happens now to these municipalities that have going, been going through this thoughtful planning for their region that, that is um, respectful of the, the fabric of the community? Do we just throw all of those out now? It, it doesn't make Make any sense to to force this in places that it just it isn't appropriate okay well, let's listen to coquitlam mayor richard stewart also speaking out about this plant here's what he had to say and i'll get your thoughts how do we get to respond and how do we make it so that our sewage systems are actually big enough to accommodate the density that the province is putting in uh, without approvals without approvals I thought that was interesting, as you pointed out there, without approvals, like approvals of the local council. Like, we're talking here about municipal jurisdiction. They're responsible for zoning and these community plans, right? And now you've got Premier David Eby saying, hang on, I'm going to step here and here and make these decisions. Is that how it looks to you? That is how it looks to me. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I certainly empathize with what these councils are saying. It makes sense. Why wouldn't you be more rational? Talk to the municipalities first. Set targets. I mean, clearly yeah. we know that we've got to increase density. 
set targets with those municipalities, provide financial incentives for them to create that density, and then have some kind of hammer if that doesn't happen. But uh, forcing this and forcing it in a scattershot way with, without consideration to access to services and all of these other things, and who is going to pay for that infrastructure? Is government also going to come in and say, well, we're going we're gonna to build you more schools right away, we're going to you know, add policing here, we're going to rebuild the roads? Who's going to pay for that? Okay, is this caving into the NIMBYs again, though? Because this is the argument you'll get from the other side, that for too long we've had so much of our land base dedicated to these single-family zone neighborhoods. And if you have one of these homes, if you live in a detached home, of course, you're happy, you love it. You know, I'm okay, Jack, leave me alone. I don't want a fourplex going in next door to me or across the street from me. I'm happy the way it is. I'm a NIMBY, not in my backyard. That's the problem that we've had, have we not? Yeah, absolutely. We have had that, and we see that with all change in every community. Um, but you also can't just come in and force something uh, that a community doesn't want. Now, we, we need to have, if you look at, at, at Surrey Centre, if you look at some of these, these other places, Metrotown, different places that have purposely created density in places that make sense, I am not saying that single-family housing and single-family lots are the, the way to go forever, but looking at um, uh, gentle densification, coach houses, uh, the secondary suites, uh, uh, this is the way to start to move that density into the single-family uh, areas, but okay. not without putting the supports in place that will allow that increased density. It's, it's not a NIMBY issue. It's, okay. it's an issue about proper community planning that adds a mix of opportunities for people to live. Um, and there's so little information on, is, is everything going to be a fourplex? Can you have one giant unit and three tiny right. ones? Can you, you yeah. know, how are we going to do it based on lot size? Okay, we're following it closely to say the least. Corinne Kirkpatrick, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the situation now with the CERB program. Remember that? Remember CERB? $5 billion in payments went out to CERB during the pandemic. Now, check this out. New internal Canada Revenue Agency audit of the CERB program finds 65% went to ineligible recipients. Wow. You talk about margin for error, 65% of the CERB money. The ineligible participants, should they have to pay that money back? Got Franco Terrazano standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to the Federal Auditor General here, Karen Hogan. Let's listen. $4.6 billion went to individuals who were ineligible to receive those payments. And we also estimated that at least $27.4 billion uh, require further investigation. Oh, man, it could be even more than that. Let's check it out. Let's discuss now with my guest, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mike. You bet. Thanks a lot. So let's talk about the CERB program here. Now, even people who were critical of, of the government said that they had to do something, right? They had to get money out the door when the economy was essentially being sh largely shut down during the early days of the pandemic. They had to get money out the door. They had to get it out fast. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, I think a lot of people would give the government leeway week one, week two, month one, month two, maybe even month three. But, you know, we just heard the Auditor General right off the top there say that there's about $32 billion that were either went to ineligible people 
or to suspicious people. And I'm looking at some of the big programs here, like the CERB or the wage subsidy that was uh, went to or meant to go to struggling businesses. I mean, some of these programs went uh, pretty late into 2021, right? So we're not talking yeah. about March, April, or just May of 2020. I mean, we're talking uh, close to two years into the pandemic, or at least a year and a half plus, and they were still just throwing buckets of cash out the door without proper guardrails. And now we're in this huge mess where you have tens of billions of dollars that taxpayers could be on the hook for. Uh, You have some people that I'm sure game the system, but also I'm sure there was many people who were just, you know, panicked, worried about their livelihoods, who who did their best uh, to follow the rules. And now the CRA is coming after them. So make no mistake about it. This is this is on the government for not having proper guardrails earlier in this process. Okay, this is very widespread, though. I mean, speaking of the CRA, uh, this headline really jumped out at me. The CRA investigating employees who received the CERB benefit when they weren't eligible to receive it. So they were working. They were working at the Canada Revenue Agency and then pocketing CERB at the same time. In the government. In the government. That is crazy. You If that's going on, you absolutely have to get that money back. I mean, listen to this, folks. You have people that we're paying. To, to work in the government, you know, I, I just chuckled there because if you don't laugh, you cry how bad this is. But, you know, you have people who we are paying to be public servants, to be government employees who are taking taxpayers' money, obviously, through their salary. And now we're finding out they may have been gaming the system. Well, the yeah. government, not just in the CRA, absolutely need, they needs to do a cross-department look into this because there's another department too, right? You have the Employment uh, Social Development Canada that has already come out and said they've identified many more employees, more than just what the CRA is saying, um, who may be in this situation as well. Okay, well, actually, let's listen to that. So this is Mary Krizenzi here testifying in front of a parliamentary committee. She is an auditor with Employment and Social Development Canada on the employees in that government agency who were apparently collecting CERB when they weren't supposed to be collecting it. Sounds like they were sort of issuing the CERB checks and then getting CERB checks themselves at the same time. So let's have a listen here and I'll get your thoughts. Those individuals that um, did um, break the trust of the employer-employee relationship, as we reviewed for cause, their security clearances have been terminated. Uh, to date, we have terminated 49 individuals. Okay, so they have fired 49 individuals in that branch of government, Franco, because they were pocketing CERB payments there inappropriately. Makes me sick. Makes me <laughs> sick to my stomach. Like, it does, yeah. though, you know? Like... Remember, remember the pandemic? I know no, none of us want to re- relive that, right? It was awful for, for everyone. But, I mean, just remember, like, people losing their livelihoods, worried about losing their livelihoods, losing sleep at night because they're worried about their small business. And you find out that they, the government had to terminate 49 employees there, uh, at least, right, um, because they were taking advantage of the system. So I heard that there was terminations in that clip, but I didn't hear whether or not they're getting the money back. Like, if someone yeah. gained the system... And, 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 like, it's, there's cause, and, and they know that they game the system. Well, they have to pay that money back because it's not fair for the taxpayers, uh, their neighbors, to be on the hook for subsidies that were clearly ineligible. Here's the thing I'm wondering, though, because I remember in the very early days of the pandemic and the very early days of the CERB program, the government themselves 
put out some eligibility rules and guidelines that were not exactly clear. In fact, I remember them flip-flopping and saying they made a mistake and trying to explain some of the eligibility rules. So is it possible that some people who in totally good faith took the CERB payments because they legitimately thought they were eligible, maybe when they were, were not, but it was an honest mistake. Yes, I think that is a, I think that is the yeah. case. I think, yeah. I think there definitely are, right? I think there's two groups of people. I think on the one hand, you have individuals or businesses who intentionally game the system. And then on the other hand, you just had people who were really struggling and were worried and, and tried to play by the rules. And, and like, look, I don't think I'm ever going to say that the CRA is exactly the easiest uh, organization to follow their rules, right? So I, I do yeah. think there's two groups of people. But let's, let's talk about another part, right? Because there's another part of this equation here, which is, I think, even more crazy, is some of the people or groups of people who got the money who should never have gotten the money, and the government should have known, right? Like, we're talking about, what, uh, 1,500 people who were in jail who got the CERB. You had uh, 700 people who weren't living in Canada who got the CERB. You had 391 dead people who oh. got the CERB. <laughs> you know, it's like, God, do you guys remember the Sixth Sense movie? Remember that? I see dead people. Here in Canada, we subsidize dead people, uh, you know. But what's so crazy about that is that um, the deceased, people who are in jail, people who are not living in Canada, this is all within the orbit of government, right? So the government should have known not to be sending money out the door to those groups of Canadians. I mean, the 391 dead people, that's crazy to me. Okay, so do you therefore think that for people who got the money when they should not have received the money, should they pay the money back? Like, you're going to have a tough time getting money back from a dead person, but let's say you're alive, okay, first of all, and you got the money when you shouldn't have, should they have to pay it back? Yeah, okay, I'm going to go back to the two groups of people and and businesses. The ones who game the system, and and look, I, I don't have... I can't see the data that the CRA sees, so I can't be more granular than that. But I'm assuming they have an idea of who gamed the system and who just made a mistake. The people who game the system, you got to go after them, and they have to pay it back. The people who made a mistake, I mean, look, I think the government needs to be compassionate with them. I, I think the government needs to give them a long timeline. And I think the government needs to do everything in their power not to overstep here because let's have some compassion for people who struggled. But at the same time, their neighbors, the small businesses, the taxpayers, shouldn't be covering ineligible subsidies. Franco, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. Thanks for having me on, Mike. continue now with our live coverage of the major police operation that is unfolding on Hastings Street in the downtown east side. Hastings Street is shut off to traffic. A transit has been rerouted in the area as police move in to take down tents and structures along Hastings Street. Police describing this as a complete decampment operation. All tents and structures are set to be removed. Earlier this week, there was a leaked police plan came out that said police would not tolerate resistance and would continue to move through to take all the tents and structures down. Officials say people are living on the sidewalk and in the tents are being offered shelter. Got Hamish Ballantyne standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to the chief of police here. Adam Palmer, chief of the Vancouver Police Department, speaking a short time ago. 
Street-level assaults within the encampment have increased 27%, and nearly half of those are now being committed by strangers. More than two times a day, a person is being assaulted in the encampment, and approximately one-third of the assaults are serious assaults or involve a weapon. Okay, let's discuss now with Hamish Ballantyne, community organizer at Vandu, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, one of the main community groups down there. Hamish, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Hamish, please tell me your thoughts and what's unfolding there on Hastings Street right now. Um, well, to start off, um, I think it's a travesty that the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver Police Department have decided to do away with any trauma-informed approach to housing people and are now simply um, displacing people from tents where they've resided for the past months with no option of uh, housing. Last week, Vancouver announced that uh, the city of Vancouver were behind on their plan for the 98 units of housing that they had announced back in the fall. And those won't be open until June, so there's no new housing available for, for people. And having called around to every shelter in Vancouver today, there are two available shelter spots for the night. So when they say that they're hoping to decamp people so that they can access shelter spots, that is um, a mistruth. There's no actual possibility that all those people will be able to access shelters. Hamish, what are you seeing down in the neighborhood there today? What have you seen unfold? What are the police doing? Can you describe it? There are approximately 100 police officers who are blocking off uh, four blocks along Hastings Street. Um, they are giving residents no option to stay or shelter in place. They're confiscating people's belongings and throwing them in the trash. Um, forcing people to move out of places uh, to... There's, they're not providing any option um, for other places people can go. The city of Vancouver has turned off the traffic cameras at Maine and Hastings um, so that there's no actual publicly accessible footage of what's going on. Uh, buses I, think, though, I, think those camera, I think those cameras... I think those cameras have been turned back on and they said it was a, that was a mistake this morning that they were turned off. I imagine that that happened after that was publicized by a journalist with CBC. Um... They have also um, refused access to media, to lawyers, to legal observers, um, and they are refusing access to people who work and live in the neighborhood if they don't have ID that proves that they live in, in at an address along the affected blocks or work at an address along the affected blocks. Okay, they have, they have allowed a TV pool camera down there. I know Global News is part of the pool camera down there, but yeah, they've got one pool camera down there, I believe, for, for TV. I'm speaking to Hamish Ballantyne from Vandu, police moving in on in the, in the Hastings Street encampment. Hamish, I'm play another clip here for you and get your thoughts. This is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim speaking a short time ago. Let's listen. Large entrenched encampments like the one uh, that we have on East Hastings is not a viable model going forward. And the, the, the longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives. Okay, when you take a look at, Hamish, some of the, uh, the disorder figures that have been released by authorities this morning here, 27% increase in street assaults. 42% increase in police officer assaults, 20% increase in arson, 67% increase in robberies near the encampment. I mean, do you deny that that's what's going on? Like, do you think the police are exaggerating it? Well, I think the police are just grafting stats um, about crime onto people who happen to live in tents. Um, you know, I don't debate um, 
that there has been an increase in fires, for example, but the majority of fires have happened actually in SROs. Um, the majority of fires are not happening in tents. And so that's just one example of ways that public officials are using the tent city as a scapegoat for problems that have existed in the city for much longer than the encampment has existed. What do you think should be done? You're saying, what, the tents and the structure should be allowed to stay? Well, I think um, the tents and the structure should be, should be allowed to stay until such time as there's actual adequate shelter and housing options available. Currently, no one is being offered housing that is dignified or safe. Um, the city has not built any, the city and the province have not built any new housing that is accessible for people. Literally not a single new unit has opened up in response to this encampment. People okay, who well, live in the encampment are not being prioritized for housing. People who live in shelters currently are being moved into housing with the idea that um, the people who live in tents will just move into those shelters, but it does not recognize that there are tons of barriers to access um, for people who live on the street to access shelters, and many of them don't actually want to stay in shelters because they don't feel safe. Okay, police are saying and authorities are saying the city is saying that pe- people are being offered shelter as they're asked to move. You're saying that's not that's not so true. What, it, might not be, it might not be permanent housing, but are they not being offered a spot in a shelter? What an offer of shelter looks like is them saying, you should go stay in a shelter. This is the address at best. But it does not mean that they're actually prioritized for the wait list for the shelter or put on the list. They're being offered shelter because someone is saying you should go stay in a shelter, but they're not actually being given any, they're not being prioritized for that shelter spot. So, so what happens? Two, they're two, having called every shelter on 211, there are two shelter spots available tonight. Okay, so if people go to these shelters where they're being directed, you're, you're saying what, they're being turned away? Well, currently, it's not even the hour at which most shelters do intake. So people are being, like, people can't just show up at a shelter in the middle of the day and access it. Um, when, tonight, when people go to the shelter, if, say, 130 people who have been recently decamped go to, go to a shelter, yes, a lot of them will be turned away because they're not sufficient shelter beds. Speaking of Hamish Ballantyne, he's a community organizer on Hastings Street. Police are moving in to remove tents and structures. Today, they describe it as a complete decampment there on Hastings Street. Let's have a listen to the fire chief here, Karen Fry. It's been nearly nine months since she issued a fire order to remove tents and structures on the sidewalk. Here she is speaking a short time ago. The specific risks include blocked exits, obstructed fire department connections, which is how we get water into the buildings, combustibles accumulating against the buildings, unsafe use of propane and storage of flammable liquids, open flames, and there were continued amount of outdoor fires in the area. Okay, Hamish, when we talk about the situation with fires in the neighborhood, I, I heard you say earlier you, you agree there have been more fires there. Is that not, how is that a tolerable situation? Like, why should the tents and structures be allowed to remain in such a hazardous situation? Well, the funny thing to me about uh, the fire risk being cited as the main reason for decamping people is that uh, Vandu was running a program with folks that lived in the tent city for for five months um, to support fire captains, to provide fire training. We provide fire training to dozens of people who lived in tents. We provided fire extinguishers to dozens, uh, scores of people. We probably bought upwards of 50 fire extinguishers and um, provided identification for people who were trained with the use of a fire extinguisher who lived within the tent city. And we supported a program where people were able to actually look out for their neighbors and put out fires in each other's tents. And it was, a, it was vastly successful Many fires were extinguished the moment they started, much faster than the fire department could actually arrive and put them out. 
Um, and then that program was totally slashed by the city. And so now they're saying that they care so much about the danger to people's lives caused by fires and tents, but really they slashed the program that was working to prevent that risk to people's lives. When you mention that pe- as police are me- moving through, they're removing personal belongings, are people able to retrieve their stuff like is the stuff being put into storage for people to collect later or is it being just like you said it's being thrown in the garbage is that what's happening they can't get the stuff back yes so many times the city calls it an impoundment process um and so what people can put on wheels in a very short amount of time when they're being monitored aggressively by cops and city workers um they're allowed to take away with them what they can't carry at a moment's notice, is being impounded or thrown away. So the city is not very clear about which it is, but often you'll see people's things just be thrown in the back of a garbage truck. And then when things are impounded, they're taken to the National Yard for a period of time. Uh, 30 days was the original figure we were given. And then people are told that they have to call 311 to begin the process of getting that back. But how do you get something back by calling 311 when, A, you don't have a phone, B, maybe you don't have minutes on your pay-as-you-go plan. C, you don't have a fixed address for your possessions to be delivered to. Um, And D, you don't know where you're going to wake up the next morning because the city keeps harassing you and moving you out of your tent. Hamish, last question for you. Speaking on that last point you just raised, you you say that there are no shelter spaces available, or I think you said there were two. Where, Where are people going to go? Like, if people have been moved out of a tent or structure today... Where do you anticipate those people will go? Where will they sleep tonight? I literally have no idea because the city has, provi- has made, provided so many obstacles to people being able to safely tent in the city. And there's no shelter spaces available. There's no new housing available. People have nowhere to go. So they're being evicted to nowhere. The city is literally just trying to make it look like there are no homeless people in the city when we all know that this is a massive problem and not enough is being done to address it. Hamish, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. We continue our coverage now of the police operation on Hastings Street in Vancouver. Police officers have moved in in large numbers. Hastings Street has been blocked off. Tents and structures are being removed at this hour. Let's check in with the mayor now, Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. Mayor Sim, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Thank you for doing it. Can you give us an update on the operation? What is the status of things down there right now? You know, I, I've been in pressers all uh, morning, so um, it looks so far um, things are uh, going okay. Um, but uh, I, I don't have an update uh, as to um, how many structures have been removed or, um, you know, um, any safety, uh, major safety concerns at this point in time. Why are you doing this? How did we get to this point? Why is this happening today? Well, you know, this this actually started since last July. There was a fire order issued by the fire chief um, basically saying that, you know, the situation on East Hastings is untenable. It's not safe. Uh, we have a risk of fire, um, not only for the tents and the people that are living in the tents, but existing structures. Also, um, what we've seen is, you know, we, we've been empathetically um, helping people into um, different housing options. And we've actually removed 600 structures to date, but uh, uh, we, we hit a turning point where uh, the re- remaining few individuals that are out there have expressed uh, little interest, or like the majority of them have expressed little interest in, in into moving into other housing options. And actually, the, the, the street's now unsafe. 
um, and so we we had to uh, you know um, take it up uh, uh, take it to the next step, which would be the safe empathetic uh, removal of uh, these structures. Um, uh, to make the environment a little safer. What would you say to someone who has been living in a tent down there or in a structure on Hastings Street and they're now being moved, their tents being taken away from them today? What would be your advice to them? Where are they supposed to go? Yeah, well, the first thing I would do is uh, say we totally sympathize with their situation. And um, at the City of Vancouver, we're, we're trying as hard as we can to compassionately um, uh, help um, you know um, help house people. We are working with uh, senior levels of government, including uh, the provincial government, to um, to find uh, uh, more housing uh, spaces for individuals. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, this this operation here today isn't necessarily about uh, homelessness. Here, we are dealing with the safety issue here, and the structures aren't safe. Um, and they're creating a lot of challenges, um, you know, and, and it, it, it's a tough situation to be in. We fully understand that. But, uh, you know, when you have a tent that uh, there's there's a risk of fire, and not only is that tent at risk, but also the, the building beside it is at risk. And, you know, you could put another 100 residents who have housing right now at risk of, you know, um, you know their lives could be at risk and or their existing housing, and it can make the situation a lot worse. Speaking of Vancouver, Mayor Ken Sim, is everyone who is being asked to decamp on Hastings Street today, are they all being offered shelter? Yeah, so what we... The individuals uh, on the downtown east side on in the Hastings encampment over the course of months, people have been offered shelters. Um, and so, and we'll continue to do that, um, you know, and, and uh, longer term, I know uh, we've been working with senior levels of government who have been, frankly, incredible partners uh, because they see the challenges that we have in housing as well. And uh, they're working on it as hard as they can so we can come up with more housing options for everyone, including our most vulnerable okay. um, residents. Okay, Mayor Sim, let me play a clip here for you from Hamish Ballantyne, who's a, a community organizer there. Uh, who spoke to me on the show here a short time ago. He says people who are being asked to move today are, are not being offered shelter spaces. Here's what he told me today, then I'll get your thoughts. Hamish Ballantyne here a short time ago. Let's listen. And having called around to every shelter in Vancouver today, there are two available shelter spots for the night. So when they say that they're hoping to decamp people so that they can access shelter spots, that is um, a mistruth. Okay, so he says that there are only two shelter spaces available in the city. Is that true? I, I don't know what the current numbers are, uh, Mike. Uh, what I can do, what I can say is in the past, um, leading up to this point, um, residents of the downtown east side and on Hastings uh, Street have been offered shelter. Uh, a lot of people have taken it up. Um, as these situations are fluid, there could be times when there isn't as many shelter spaces available. And I do want to emphasize that today, um, look, let's be incredibly um are real here. We have challenges. This this uh, um, uh, operation to um, remove the encampment isn't necessarily about solving homelessness. Uh, we have homeless um, uh, individuals throughout our city. This 
is really about a safety issue. Um, you know, that that street has gotten incredibly unsafe. We have, no. you know, shootings, crossbows, pellet guns, real guns, stabbings. People are being assaulted. Atira just did a study of or a survey of 50 uh, women in the neighborhood. All 50 had been assaulted, including sexually assaulted, and all 50 did not feel safe. What no. we are trying to achieve here is to make the area Safer. And yes, we do have housing challenges, and um, we are looking at addressing those as well. Okay, do you do you know how many shelter spaces are available? I mean, he said, that, that guy I just spoke to said there are two, as far as he knows. Do you know how many there are? Like, how many shelter spaces are available right now? Uh, Mike, I don't have the accurate number, so, uh, you know, shouldn't I, you know, I don't want to throw a number. Shouldn't you know that? Before you move people out, shouldn't you know how many shelter spaces are available before you tell people to move along? Sure. And, you know, what I'm saying is the situation's fluid because these, these shelter spaces get filled up and uh, vacated all the time. So, you know, you can have a number very, um, you know, within hours. So I'd love to get that. I, I can get back to you with an accurate number. Um, okay. Do you anticipate that as people are moved out from Hastings Street, if there are no shelter spaces available or they don't go to a shelter, could we see other tent encampments spring up in other parts of the city? Could we see existing camps in places like Crab Park? Could they swell? Could we see more tents showing up in some of these other locations? Yeah, so um, I want to be very clear about this. Large entrenched encampments are not safe and they are not a viable uh, option going forward. And uh, at the City of Vancouver, we're going to do everything in our um, you know, you know, in our power to make sure that, uh, you know, encampments in the future do not get entrenched. And so, you know, that's where we are today. Uh, we are looking at, um, you, know, um, you know, moving this encampment along and concurrent with that. And it, it is a challenging situation, but we are looking for more uh, housing solutions and other support services for our most vulnerable um, people. Last question for you. Do you expect this to be a one-day operation, that by the end of today all the can- all the tents and structures will be gone, or could this stretch into tomorrow? Yeah, we would like it, um, you know, this phase of the operation, we would like it to, uh, you know, happen in one day, but we're ready for it to, you know, to roll over um, if if need be. And ongoing, we're looking at making sure that encampments do not become a thing of the future. Yeah, the last question for you. What is the chain of command here? Is this your call or who makes the call to do this? Is this a police decision, fire chief decision, or is it a decision of yourself, the mayor? Yeah, so this is a city of Vancouver-led operation. Uh, we've, you know, we've consulted with all the different uh, groups in the city, and um, it's being led um, by the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver Police Department. They are, you know, they're on the streets with us to provide safety to uh, the city engineers that are coming in um, 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 in these operations. Mayor Sam, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.